You're listening to the First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas sermon podcast. For almost 130 years, FBCMF has served the Marble Falls and the Greater Highland Lakes area faithfully through children's programs, youth activities, and adult discipleship. We invite you to join us each and every Sunday at 9 and 10.30 a.m. for deep fellowship, rich worship, and a spirit-filled message. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. For more information about our church or to watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org. Well, as, as all of you, or most of you know, we are in a, a sermon series, and the sermon series is called Evidence for Faith, and, and I hope, I hope that it's helped all of you grow in your, your confidence that our faith has, has real evidence that, that, that's rational and, and logical, that, that our faith has evidence that's very reasonable. Now, popular atheism really enjoys making it sound as if their view of the world is the only view that has merit or that, that, that is logical. Um, and, and because of that, we sometimes as Christians get very intimidated in this whole conversation, and, and for that reason and so many more, that's why I wanted to talk about all of this. So for the past five weeks, we have looked at, at a lot of the, the rational and reasonable um, evidence uh, for a lot of our beliefs, and, and we, we've also looked at how Christianity is capable of, of answering some of the most important questions that people are asking in our world, like what is the meaning of life? When, when other worldviews, and certainly science and other things, cannot answer what is the meaning and the purpose of life, we have a worldview based in Jesus Christ where we can answer that, and not only that, but, but our beliefs also speak to what we, we, we acknowledge as reality all over our world of the evil and the goodness that we see in humanity. And this morning we're continuing this. We only have two more sermons left in the series, but today we are considering something very important. Here it is. Can science and our Bible even be in the same room together without fighting each other? Um, do, do Christians have to throw all of science out or at the same token does does a christian scientist because of the 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 peer pressure uh, of his certain field or her field do they have to throw the bible out are um are science and the bible that diametrically opposed at every single level. Now, popular atheism is going to say, yes, they are, and because they're that diametrically opposed, they, they put pressure on everyone to choose between the two. Um, and, but, and, and they create, popular atheism creates the tension between the Bible and science, but that tension is often not true. The tension is a manufactured kind of tension, and unfortunately, I've even heard Christians manufacture a kind of tension between the Bible and science, claiming that you cannot believe any science, really, if you're going to be a Christian and hold the Bible. But I, I wonder, 
Are any of you in here tired of those kinds of extremes? Tired of, of being put in a place where, where, where you can only believe one and not believe the other? This morning, I'm very happy to offer very strong evidence that demonstrates the truth that, that the Bible and science relate very, very well together, that there is this, this wonderful perspective where, where we can hold the Word of God high and authoritative, and at the exact same time, we can respect the findings of science. It's an exciting thing. Um, the, do y'all remember in the mu musical Oklahoma that, 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 that uh, Aunt Eller sang this song about these two diametrically opposed groups, the farmers and the cowmen. The name of the song is the, the farmers and the cowmen should be what? Friends, friends. Do y'all remember the song? The, you want me to sing it? Some of you apparently don't, don't remember it. The, uh, the musical, it, it, it goes, Oh, the farmer and the cowmen should be friends. Oh, the farmer and the cowmen should be friends. One man likes to push a plow, the other likes to chase a cow, but that's no reason why they can't be friends. That's how it went. So, <laughs> they, well, all I'm, I, I bring it up because that's our tune this morning, that, that the Bible and science should be friends. And, and to point this out, Dr. Vern Poitras, who is the professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary, talked about this, this antagonism between the two and, and makes it clear that it doesn't have to be, that it's really distortions, distortions that create the antagonism. We're going to speak to this this morning. Number one, we're going to talk about the evidence that we see in science um, that, that points to God. Number two, we're going to talk about the capacity of science. And number three, the capacity of Scripture. Um, but here's what, what um, Dr. Poitras says. He says this in his book called Redeeming Science. Redeeming Science. And he says, I sometimes meet Christian people who are afraid of science because they think that it is antagonistic to Christianity. Y'all ever met folks like that? The idea of antagonism is widespread, but it rests on a cultural history that has distorted, so it's not true. The, 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 the fight doesn't have to be. It rests on a cultural history that has distorted people's understanding of science. Now, I want to add something to what he said. I believe that it also rests on another distortion, and that is a distortion that people have about the Bible, the Word of God. There are many distortions on, on all sides that make this very difficult, and so it's no wonder that we're in a struggle. But we're going to try to solve a little bit of it this morning. First, there are clues in science and clues in the scientific method that begin pointing us to God. Now, there, there are many things that are discovered by science that give clues to intelligent design. What I did not say right there is it does not prove intelligent design. Science doesn't prove intelligent design, um, but someone could interpret the scientific data in, in a very rational way that creates space to talk about God and God's working in our world. You could rationally, a scientist 
a Christian, anyone in the world could rationally see many of the scientific discoveries and interpret them in a way that creates space to talk about God. It is not a stretch. Genesis 1.31 that was read earlier said that God created the world and it was good. I'm going to add to that Romans 1 verse 20. Here's what it says. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. That there is something of the the fingerprints of God all over our world. And I believe that, that our culture and our society as advanced as we are scientifically, have not moved past the power of Romans 1.20. I think that people can still look at beautiful mountains and, 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 and see them covered with snow, or they can go to, to beaches and see the oceans. I believe that people can still see all of this, and God can speak to their heart about who he is. That still can happen today. Um, and so here... I would like to offer one of the most important pieces uh, of scientific evidence that that point us to God. Now, I know uh, a lot of you probably know a whole lot of evidence out there, but I want to offer just just one and try to explain it as best as I can this morning because I think that this one that I'm going to, to talk about is exceedingly important, and here's what it is. In order for our world to be created with the structure that it has, all of its cells, all of its atoms, everything that makes up what it is, very consistent and stable forces of nature and laws had to already be present and and they had to be perfectly balanced laws in order to produce everything that we see. The planets... The stars, atoms of all kinds, all of these things are all contingent and they hang on very consistent, very structured, ordered laws in nature. The the theoretical physicist Lee Smolin points to the importance of this this development of understanding the, the, the consistency of the laws that ended up creating our world. And and to such a point, he says, these original forces of nature had to be so precise and so consistent. I want you to notice a word that he uses here as he talks about it. And um, and, and, and tell me if it doesn't uh, begin pointing a little bit to God. Here is his quote. The existence of stars rests on several delicately um, balances delicate balances between the different forces of nature. So he's not talking about the star itself, but the things that that, that are consistent in nature that end up creating the star. He said, these require that the parameters that govern how strongly these forces act be tuned just so. In many cases... A small turn of the dial in one direction or another results in a world not only without stars but with much less structure 
than our universe and what we see. Do y'all notice the phrase tuning? This scientist says that there are certain forces of law and they had to be so exact and so consistent. He, he uses the word that they were fine-tuned. That, that if they had been off just a little bit in any direction, we would have not gotten all of these types of things. Well, as Christians, when we see a scientist say that these very consistent forces of nature had to be so perfect, it is as if they were finely tuned, then we want to jump in right here. And we want to say, we have an idea who the fine tuner is. Um, according to science, the, the things that happened the way they did were not always out of random chance. But at the very, very beginning, the things that produced our world couldn't have been just random. They had to be consistent. If they were not very, very um, peculiar, and if they were not exact, we would have gotten something very different. It had to be exact. For instance, um, a, a, a scientist named Martin Rees who's the current president of the Society of Royal, uh, the Royal Society of London, which is Britain's leading association of scientists, creates a, a whole list, and he begins talking about all of these things that were the original forces of nature that he said, because they were, they were tuned perfectly, because they were so consistent, that out of that consistency, we were able to have all of the things that we have today. And here are some of the things that he says. Um, he said, number one, the structures of gravity had to be perfect. So if gravity didn't work exactly the way that it, it was, it, it is, we would all be smashed into the earth if it pulled too hard, or everybody would float up into the air. The earth could not bind itself together. The stars couldn't bind. Gravity had to be tuned perfectly for it all to happen. And not just that, the electromagnetic force also had to be perfect. He also says this, that most all of the elements we have come from hydrogen, and that hydrogen had to have this, this bond that held them together called a um, coupling constant. And I'm not a chemist, but I, I read a little bit about it this past week. But the coupling constant in chemistry is this bond that keeps hydrogen exactly what it is so that it can... Um, um, produce all of these other kinds of elements. It had to be perfect, this coupling constant in hydrogen, but also the forces of nuclear fusion had to be perfect as well. Uh, if any of these things had been just slightly different than what they were, we wouldn't have the world that we have. And so it, it is these original constants that are very important to think about. Here's just one example of how the, the, the forces were very consistent in order to help hydrogen and helium produce something else. And here, here is that other, other thing that's important. Carbon. Every, almost everything that you see it, it has carbon in it, and carbon is important, but carbon is really, really hard to make. The only way that carbon comes about is through a process in nuclear fusion in a star where, where helium combines with helium to form beryllium, 
and then you have beryllium, and then you put hydrogen back to it within this process of nuclear fusion, and, and, and this is what produces carbon. It's very complex, but I'll show you. Uh, this is the, um, um, the chemistry kind of equation for it. I think we have it. Ah, I was looking the wrong side. The, um, so you have helium plus helium, and you get beryllium. So you take the beryllium, and then you add helium back to it, and you get carbon, and it's a two-step process. But in that process, you had to have the perfect environment of nuclear fusion in a star for it to happen. And the only reason the star existed in the first place is if you had the very consistent gravitational force that, that held that star perfectly so that the star wouldn't collapse in on itself or be pulled apart. The probability of getting carbon is, is astronomical if everything is just random. And in fact, the, the probability of getting carbon, which our life has to have in order to get it, for all of these things to come out of something, the processes had to already be very constant and very exact and finely tuned. And, and so if those original forces were just random and chaotic, there's no way that we could have gotten the number one building block, carbon for everything. And so in, in all of the scientific facts, what, what, what keeps rising to the surface is these, these physical forces that are constant and that are, that are perfect in, in, in how they are tuned. And so atheistic evolutionists study the life and the processes that are born out of those constants. But here's where they fail. They study all of this and they may come up with some great things about life and, and, and about processes, but it's all dependent, all of it, on something that is consistent and something that's finely tuned. And here's where they fail. They love, people love to do research based on these things, but they never ask the question, how are the things so finely tuned to begin with. Um, the, the, they fail to ask the important question, what explains how the original forces became so constant? How did they come about? And so it's not a stretch that to, to ask, since science shows that those constants are, are, are important and they exist, we should be able to ask, how did they get here? Where did they come from? And right here is where science takes the baton and they hand it off to other fields of study. And so I've given you some evidence that points us to God, the, the finely tuned constants in nature that, that say there, there, there could have been a fine tuner, a God, we begin to create space to talk about it then. But here's the next step, the capacity of science. What science is capable of speaking to is, is how things are made up and, and what they are becoming and how they are changing. That's what they answer. Theology takes the baton because at that point, science has come to its capacity Theology takes it, and we take it further because we ask different questions. Theology is concerned 
with why. Why does that thing exist? Theology is concerned with why. I want y'all to say that with me. Theology is concerned with why. Theology is concerned with why things happen and what is the purpose and meaning behind it. We have questions. Everybody in our world has questions that go beyond and further than science into philosophy and into ethics, into the meaning of things because some questions are just too big, too big for science. And, and, and this is not a criticism of science. It's simply a, I'm simply, I'm pleading with everybody to avoid discrediting science by making it say things that by its very own processes it cannot say. Um, such as, such as science, can you give us proof that there is an intelligent designer behind the world? It can't give us proof that's making it go way too far, that's beyond its capacity. What it does is it points us toward God but not proves it. It gives us clues and then science hands off the baton to others to try to come together and figure out, well, why? Now does life exist? Richard Dawkins and other members of popular atheism like to say that science never hands off the baton to anybody. That science can explain everything. And in, in, in fact, they have an idea called the theory of everything. And in the theory of everything, the idea is that science can explain every single thing in the world. But neuroscientist Max Bennett and philosopher Peter Hacker speak to this, this idea that, the, that science explains everything idea, and, and here's what they say about it. Scientific theories cannot be said to explain the world, only to explain the phenomena which are observed within the world. Y'all, we, we live in a multi-layered universe, and it is rational that, that certain fields of study deal with different layers. Physics, and chemistry, and biology, and philosophy. Um, uh, among others, they offer explanations at, at their appropriate level, within their expertise, within their capacity. But any one of those fields, all by itself, individually, is not exhaustive. They have to talk to one another, so science needs philosophy. Science needs religious studies. Each one offers its unique contribution to reality, and it is so reasonable that science cannot answer everything. We deal with this on a, on a regular, uh, regular day of life all the time. Let, say it like this. Think about it. Science can't answer everything. Something else has to come in and take the baton. Um, one really easy example. Let's say that you had a cake, and you wanted to examine, you wanted to put that cake under the scientific process and examine all of its chemical makeup and the physics that hold that cake together, and you're going to have elaborate, long discussions over the, the, the chemical makeup of that cake. And so you do it, and you figure out all of it. Well, at the end of the process, 
does any of that give you the idea to know that that cake is actually made for somebody's birthday party? It's a, no. The, the cake, what it, what it was designed for, why the cake exists, cannot be answered by science. It has to hand off the baton so that others can say, you know what, here is why the cake exists. And this idea happens all the time. Religion, religion plays the role of, of, of talking about why things exist. Atheism is a religion. And, and, and when it takes the baton from science, it says that the world serves no universal historical purpose except for individual purposes that people just create. Christianity, a religion that takes the baton, and we say the world has a reason for its existence. It came into being out of the power of a highly creative and a very highly loving God who finally tuned all of the constant forces that ended up creating everything that we see so that you and I are created by the finely tuned tuning God who made us in his very image. As science hands off the baton in this wonderful partnership, Christianity completes the story. We complete it with a story that gives meaning to people and hope to people. We're not, Christianity is not against the findings of science. We just take what they say and we begin to add texture and meaning to it. And y'all, we have a belief called all truth is God's truth. Because the devil's not about truth. The devil is the father of, of what? Lies. So if something is true, then it's God's truth. God is not afraid of science. He's proud of it. He's proud of any research in the world that begins to demonstrate truth because he believes that if people will open their eyes and if they'll be willing to see it, that, that those findings can point people to him. He loves it if people will open their eyes to see it. And so now, we, we, we've looked at the capacity of science, but it's also proper that we look at the capacity of Scripture as well. And uh, as we have said, Scripture teaches theology, and theology is concerned with why. Why is the world here? Who is this God, and why does he want a relationship with us? That is a theological question. And science can't answer it. And to nail down this, this idea that, that the Bible is a theological book talking about why, rather than all of the hows, and rather than the other things, I want to give you an example. In John chapter 5, and then we're going to look at John 21, he, here is a way that people were messing up Scripture and putting their own purpose into it. Um, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and Jesus said to them, you, you guys studied the scriptures diligently because you think that in, in them, in, in the Bible, in, in your scripture, you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who gives eternal life here, baby. I am it. And he goes, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Jesus amazingly is correcting their treatment of the Bible. They're refusing to see the Bible's main purpose, and that is to point people toward Christ. They're missing the whole thing. 
And Pharisees are not the only ones who do this. From their moment all the way till now, people will put their own purposes and their own um, layer upon the Bible in order to get it to say something that, that, that suits their purposes for it and their reason for it. And, the, and in that, the Bible is probably the most abused book in the world. In John 20, the, the Apostle John really lines out, and he says, this is the purpose of Scripture. And he said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. So there are things Jesus did that we don't know about. And he said, they are not recorded in this book. But John is saying, I took all these, God helped me to take all these things and write them down here. These things are written in the Bible for this purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the purpose of the word of God. It, it, it is, Lord, why am I here? Well, you're here so that you may believe in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches, the theology of that. Y'all, it is never, it has never been faithful Bible study to suggest that the Bible serves every purpose in the whole world, that the Bible is the guidebook for everything. And that is not a slight on the Bible to acknowledge that. We are, we are not reducing the Bible or making it sound as if it is not authoritative. When we say that, it's just logical. It, the, the, the Bible is not as helpful as Betty Crocker's cookbook if you're baking a pecan pie. If you're baking a pecan pie, even God smiles and he says, yes, by all means, listen to St. Betty Crocker when you, when you do that. It's important. But, but, but people want to say, well, here's the purpose for the Bible, and then they often miss it. And so well, what does that have to do with this discussion? Just this. If, for, for any of you, the real big issue is, is the, divide, but the divide between science and scripture is where when you read the Bible says that God creates the world in six days and rests on the seventh. In this seven-day creation narrative, that that, you see, doesn't reconcile in any way with science that says that the Bible, I mean, that the world is much, much older and because of that, 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 that's the sticking point. And so as we come to an end, what I'd like to do is offer you some options to take the real purpose of Scripture that John talks about and that we have looked at and to see the real purpose of Scripture come alive in this Genesis creation story and to be able to look at it like this. Um, and, and, and let me say, when it comes to this, most all Christians and people have have a lot of opinions on it. Faithful Christians land in several different places when they read the creation story. But like the rest of Scripture, Genesis 2 is primarily a theological book intending to connect humanity with God. That's what it's doing. So how do you suppose the author of Genesis is going to connect people with the creator God, when he writes the creation narrative. What's going to come forward to really teach this idea? 
Here is one very interesting thing about Genesis that you may have never considered. In Jewish literature, in Genesis is Jewish literature, the number seven constantly symbolizes godly perfection. It is a symbolic number. Genesis teaches that creation, and the story of creation, unfolds in seven days. Why? Well, for the Jews, the people writing this and the people reading it, for the Jews, it meant to them that God created the world perfectly. And if God created the world perfectly, what does it tell you about God? That God is a perfect God. That's the deal. A perfect God creating a perfect world. For them, it's not about how, how God created, but that, that a perfect God created, and he marked his creation perfectly with orderliness. And in Jewish literature, the number seven was used to do this all the time. For the Jews, the number seven describes not a calendar of time, but a perfect amount of time to achieve a certain work. For instance, if the Jews were going to write, if a Jewish historian or a, 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 if they were writing literature and they were going to use this to talk about something that you did in your life, if something took you 100 literal days to complete, but that Jewish person wants to write about what you did and he looks at the final product of what you achieved and it is beautiful and it is life-changing and it is good and people's lives can be touched by that work that you did, then that person, even though it took you literally 100 days to create it, if what they're intending to say is that your work was a perfect, life-changing work, then they might say that you did that work in seven days to demonstrate a, something bigger, something better than just the calendar of it all. Now, to drive this point home, the author of Genesis puts this number seven everywhere everywhere through the story. And I want you to listen to this. Each of the three nouns, the noun God, heavens, and earth, are repeated over and over a number of times that is a multiple of seven through the whole story. The term light and day are found seven times in the first paragraph. There are seven references to light in the fourth paragraph. Water is mentioned seven times in paragraphs two and three. In the fifth and sixth paragraphs, the word for living beast occurs seven times. The expression, it was good, appears seven times. The first verse has seven words. The second verse contains 14 words, which is twice seven. In the seventh paragraph, which deals with the seventh day, there are three sentences, and each sentence contains seven words. The words on the seventh, in the seventh paragraph total 35, which is five times seven. This is no mistake. The Jews writing this want to tell any reader, anybody, that unlike all of the other creation stories by other um, civilizations out there, us Jews believe in Yahweh who is perfect. And that Yahweh created a perfect world. The theology is what rises to the surface. When, when there's a, a Hebrew 
um, theologian named Yu Kosudo, and he's famous. He was a famous Hebrew um, professor at the University of Jerusalem. And when he noticed how over and over again the number seven is used in the creation story, this is what he wrote about it. To suppose that all of this is just mere coincidence is not possible. The numerical symmetry is, as it were, the golden thread that binds together all the parts and serves as convincing proof of its unity and purpose. Seven, perfection, the theology of it. To the Jews, what Genesis has to teach is not an ancient science or a calendar of time, but something far better, far richer, and more beautiful than any of that. It's a theology of a perfect God and how he created not just the world, but he created you perfectly too. And that you have been made in the image of God. That's where it finally comes to. And, and, and so, is there mystery with all of it? Absolutely. But the literature itself is telling us a, a theological point. But on top of that, on top of that, when we read the creation story, more complexities come in. Could, could time have been truly different in the earliest moments of creation? And as our, as our universe, as science says, is expanding, 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 has time changed in the vast expansion of everything? Albert Einstein thought so. So perhaps in Genesis 1, when everything moved very differently at different speeds, could it mean that the dimension of time is different and that a day to us is not really a day literally? Not, I'm not talking about a day to God is different, but I'm talk, and, and not symbolically, but literally how the dimension of time is different than it was at the very beginning. People thought so. Einstein thought so. And so, if the actual day could be different as well, this adds to some of the mystery. And therefore, if science wants to say, based on a lot of research, that, that possibly the world is very, very old, that's not offensive to us. Because our main teaching from Genesis is that it teaches about a perfect God. Intelligent design. Intelligent design is what comes to the surface. That God built the world and he loves it. Um, and there is mystery to some of it. But if science ever tries to step over their jurisdiction by attempting to claim that there is no intelligent design behind our world, then they have overstated their case. They, they, they have moved out of their lane. And, and the, the reason that they most often do this is because there is another religion sometimes behind it, pushing it, and that's called the religion of atheism. Our issue, our issue is not with science simply. Our issue is with the faith. Another faith called atheism. It's faith against faith. And I have never in my life found one single life-giving thing about atheism. It's not hopeful. And it's not helpful. 
but our faith breathes it in and takes from science, and we begin to complete the story. And then we begin to say that not only is there meaning in our world, but your life has meaning, and your life has meaning, and your life has meaning. And you can see the meaning of your life when you look at the creator of our world and the beauty and the fabric of our creation. Because here's what it means. If, if God is perfect and he creates a perfect world, that means he loves the world. And if he loves the world, it means he's going to redeem our world through Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ redeems our world, that means he's going to come back and he's going to get us all because he is not finished with all of it yet. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ. God is going to make everything in the world exactly perfect the way that he has always intended to do it. That's the story of the Bible. And that's a great story. I hope that every one of you here will give your life to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you bow your heads with me? This morning, if, if, you, if, if you're a, an adult or, or, or a youth and you have wanted to believe in God all the way up to this point where, where you thought, well, in order to believe in God, I'm going to have to give up all of science, then may today be a better day for you where, where you're able to say, my goodness, I think that I can hold both of these things intelligently. I, I hope that now you can say, God, come into my life and save me. If you need to rededicate your life or recommit your life to the Lord, may this be the day that you do that. As you've heard about the wonders of our Lord, would you commit your life to God once again? Would you You've been listening to the First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas sermon podcast. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. For more information about our church or to watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org.